Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Today, we will be reading a chapter from The Baby Thief by Barbara Besance Raymond, and then we'll be talking to our guest, Haley Radke. We'd like to take a moment here to say thank you to our sponsor and fellow adoptee, S12F, for his continual support. Hi, Louise. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Well, this this chapter we just read, George's methods, was pretty awful, I have to say. Yeah. Part two, George's crimes. Yes. Oh, but before we mm-hmm. get oh, into the chapter, we, tell everybody yes. what, we've, what we've been talking about. So Sarah and I have been talking about our Patreons and how much we love them. And a lot of people that are Patreons write into us, we can't donate more than the small amount a month. What's going on? So we looked into Patreon and we are going to offer a level two Patreon, like just one little bump up. So if you're already a Patreon, you could jump up level. If you want to become a new Patreon, you don't have to, but then you get to have a monthly Zoom with Sarah and I. Yes. Kind of fun for us too to meet our Patreons. Some of them we know. That would be really fun. Yeah. We'll just hop on Zoom with our Patreons and we can either choose a monthly topic or y'all can reach out to us and give us some ideas. Yeah. Yeah. But we kind of thought the first one would be the week after Thanksgiving. We haven't figured out a date yet. Sometime most people kick it on and maybe like a thankful, thankful for our Patreons. Just come on and then we could maybe you can start sending us notes about it. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, I'm excited about that. It'll be fun. Mm -hmm. Just just to interact with people. Yeah. (laughs) That that aren't guests or whatever, you know, just. Patreons that support us and our friends that we haven't met yet. So some we Talking. have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. excited, but I'm not excited to talk about Georgia. No. <laughs> uh, when, and you just, it just kept the, the chapter got worse and worse as, as you read on, it's called Georgia's methods. And it's mm. really just about how she was able to, to do what she did. I mean, it, as we've said before, it was a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. There was, there was one thing right at the start. Well, okay. I do like this. The The author, how, how we have discussed, was an adopted parent who was also a journalist researching this. And then she was saying how she has to like grapple with what's become of modern adoption and her kids. And she just had this one little, she was talking about adopting her daughter and it w- she would have been perfect for Georgia. Beth's eyes are the same striking color, green. She was a lovely baby. Georgia would have sold her quickly. Mm-hmm. Just the word sold, that's how it starts. It's horrid. I mean, slave trade, really. I mean, well, yeah, that's exactly what she, she was trafficking. Mm-hmm. The chapter just goes deep into how this all happened who she got on board. I mean, she, she, by the end, she had pretty much everybody on board. The thing that, and I know I'm jumping way ahead in the chapter, but what was particularly horrifying, I thought were the roundups 
where oh. she got so many people involved just I don't know how anybody could in good conscience have done this or what they told themselves they were doing, but people would go around and in the poor parts of town and just take children. Yes. Yeah, steal people's children from their arms. Sometimes. And then they'd get, she'd get call outs like, Oh, there's a, there's a, a good yeah. three-year-old over, over there. That's blonde hair, blue eyed. Go get that one on five, two, five main street. Go grab that one. And it was, I can't even, I can't really put my arms around it that it happened like that. We know that, but then reading the actual details of the people involved, like you say, that made this happen. There was two people. We are jumping ahead, but there was two the, the one judge that the just, judge. oh boy, was she. Yes. I, Horrible. I you know, here. Georgia was, was clearly likely a sociopath, but not everybody involved was. And no. how... Could they Camille have Kelly? Camille Kelly, yeah, juvenile court judge there mm-hmm. to help children. Camille Kelly and was being paid off by Georgia to allow these adoptions to go through. And she would she would rule in the favor in the courts to mm-hmm. make sure they went there and against the parents, even if the parents were wonderful and had nothing bad going on. Poverty is what they had going on. Poverty, and in fact, there was a case. Somebody, a woman. Oh, what a tragic. Georgia showed up and said, I'll take your three youngest. And she just, they stole her three youngest children. She ended up getting a lawyer and yes. taking it all the way. And at the end of the day, the judge ruled in all the adoptive, you know, and they all had different yes. parents, adoptive parents favor because they could provide better financially. Like, and one of those kids ended up in foster care back and forth for seven years. Mm-hmm. And a drinking family that abused Ultimately him. ended up with alcoholics who abused yes. him. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's so much better for him. I mean, and also, let's not forget, I thought it was interesting. She had a love affair or a woman who lived with her for years, partners, whatever they turned out to be, who was equally complicit. Mm-hmm. So and then and then their adoptive daughter, yes. who, they, who they brought into the family crime business. Helped become a criminal. Procuring the children. It was a family crime. It was a crime business is what it was, yeah. a family business of... Yeah. Kidnapping. And Anne sounds like she had no personality of her own because all these people, that was her name, Anne, have met with her several times and not remember what she looked like. So it's like Georgia was her importance in life or something. Just disgusting. She gave her her identity years after Georgia and would not talk about her in a negative way or reckon for her own sins. I'm guessing it's really right. Oh, they called the people spotters. By 1939, Georgia's spotters included not only her staff of six women, certain nurses, physicians, attorneys, and Judge Camille Kelly, but also social workers employed by agencies other than Georgia's own. It's disgusting. You know why it got so busy? Can we talk about that? It got Mm. so busy. They couldn't keep up with the adoptions. And it wasn't all just Tennessee. It was illegal to go across Tennessee lines, but they were doing it. Mm-hmm. And she had franchises, of course. The reason it was so busy is because of their wonderful Christmas ads. Oh my they gosh. Advertising babies. And look at this. Which, oh. by the way, if you go on X, formerly known as Twitter and Instagram, you can see adoption agencies basically still advertising their yeah. babies. Yes. This is still this still goes on. It does. Here's here's some. Could you use a Christmas baby? Which will you have for Christmas? Living dolls. Three girls for you, maybe. 
understand Jimmy Ray. Want one of them? Put your orders in early. Sarah. It's oh, like, my God. I know. I, I mean... I love our Patreons, but I'm excited to be done with this book. I'm excited to be done with this book. <laughs> and we are, we know we, it, we aren't even halfway through. At any rate, is anyone reading along? We would love feedback. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this chapter, which yeah. took me hours to finish because it was just so brutal. But yes, brutal. we, we would love the engagement. So let us know what you think. Are, are you reading along? Where are you at with it? What are you feeling? How enraged are you? And by the way, you can tell us how enraged you are when you become a Patreon. Yes. On our Zoom. (laughs) So next week, we will be reading Georgia's adults. Adults? Is there? I'm guessing these are the people grown up that are going to talk about it. Yes. Yes. So that's where we're at next week. Georgia's adults. Follow Uh along with us. We have a big interview. If you today. dare, if you can stomach it. <laughs> if you can stomach it. Yeah. Our interview today is going to be pretty uh, cool for people in this yes. adopting world. It, Haley Racky adoptees on. I'm I'm sure you all know her. So yes, it's a great interview. <laughs> it is. Okay, see you in a minute. See you in a minute. Hello. Today, we are excited about our guest. We've been trying to meet with her for a couple of years now, and it's finally coming together. She, too, is a podcaster. She's got the probably one of the first adoptee podcasts, I'm guessing, kind of the godmother of it all, huh? Got Haley Radke from Adoptees On. She is joining us today from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Everybody is earlier than I am today. Welcome, Welcome. Haley. Woohoo! Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. There are at least a hundred adoptee run podcasts, and I am one of the first, but definitely not the first. There are a few that came before me, but thank you. Um, Apologies to those that came before you if I misspoke. (laughs) We sort of consider you that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been called a godmother. That's uh, really something. I hope that wasn't an insult. It was meant to be a, a positive. Like you're you're kind of a role model in the podcast mm-hmm. adopting no, podcast world. It's so kind. Thank you. So we're gonna dig into your story. You interview everybody. We want to hear your story. So start from the beginning. I've I feel nervous about I it. Know. Honestly, <laughs> I never talk about my story really, except I a have a piece here thing. and there. Yeah. Yes. Same. Mm-hmm. So my origin story is that my biological parents dated in high school and I was the product of a teen pregnancy. So my mother was almost 16 when she Mm -hmm. had me, about a month away from turning 16. And my dad was 17 and I was placed for adoption and adopted to an infertile couple who had waited for seven years on the list for a healthy matching race infant. And I actually grew up in a very small town in Northern Alberta, very small Mennonite town, which was kind of a quirky upbringing. And they were not Mennonite, but they were elementary school teachers. I was going to ask, were they Mennonite? No, they were elementary school teachers. So I was called one of the English kids. English because everybody in town spoke low German. And so 
So I, I did learn a little bit of low German growing up. So I came back to Edmonton, where I live now, for university. And I took psychology. That's my undergrad degree. And I met my husband here. And we got married very young. And I, when I realized Alberta had opened up the adoption records in 2005, so I was just barely married, I requested my records and they came and I didn't have any idea what I was opening up to myself. I had no clue what could happen in reunion. I knew maybe Haley, another adopted person. Mm-hmm. What what made you want to ask for your records? Well, when I turned 18, I immediately ordered my non-identifying information. I always wanted to know who my parents were. I was very in the ghost kingdom, wanting, imagining which person could possibly be out there. Of course, I'm a long lost princess or (laughs) celebrity child of some kind. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us have the like famous person in mind who we (laughs) thought was our mother. Yes. Uh, I can't name that for you now, but I'm sure I went through anybody who had brown hair and was beautiful. So (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious, what did your parents tell you? When you were growing up, mm-hmm. it was what was the conversation around that? I always knew I was adopted, so it wasn't a secret. And I looked similar enough to them that nobody ever made comments. And I always interjected if people said, Oh, you look so much like your dad or your mom. And I'd be like, Oh, I'm, but I'm adopted. I would always do that. I don't know why. We didn't talk about it. It, it was not spoken. So at some point it was when I was really little. But after that, we we never talked about it. It was I am one of those things, I think, where it was implied that you are ours mm-hmm. and that's it. Nothing, nobody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very, as you know, talking to other adoptees, very similar scenarios in many with many adoptees. Yeah. So when I, when I, ordered my non-identifying information at age 18. I don't know that I told them or that they knew I would have been at university already, so fully able to do that privately. And I don't know if either of you have seen non-identifying information. Yeah, it's like, basically, it's a nothing. It's like a, yeah. maybe a physical description and then some things that my mother liked to do. But I held on to those things and I was like, oh my gosh, she loves reading me too. Like we must be, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? You're looking for anything, any similarity. And yeah, so I did want to know, and I don't know how I found out that Alberta had open records. I mean, I must have just heard about it on the news or something. That's pretty remarkable that they had open records. Yeah, they initially had open records with a veto in place. So if any party wanted their information redacted, they could write in and request. But recently, in the last couple of years, even that has been removed. So we have fully open records here, which is Mm. amazing. Is that all throughout Canada? No, that's province by province. Mm. And some provinces are fully open, some have a veto. And some, I think Prince Edward Island has really terrible 
law. Don't quote me on this. I'm pretty sure it's them, but I think you can be prosecuted for finding and con- trying to reach out to biological connections without their consent. How would you get their consent wow. if you don't reach out to them? I don't know, but really archaic going backwards laws. So there's a lot of adoptees working to do a lot of work in Canada in that regard. Yeah. Mm. So you get your non-identifying, then 2005, you get your your records. Mm-hmm. Yep. So my huge envelope <laughs> came to the university I was living in. No wait, I wasn't I wasn't living in dorms. I was married by that point, but I had a PO box at the university still. So I remember getting it and opening up school and I was just finishing degree my degree and I like read through all of it right away, did not process. We did have the internet then, so <laughs> I could do a little looking, but it had my biological mother's full name, my father's full name. And it had an address for her, which I literally went to a phone book and looked up the surname and double checked the address. And it was the case that her parents still lived at the address that when when she had me. And so I, I wrote a letter to that address. So in the folder, they give you all that information, just everything. Right there. The only parts that were redacted to me were information about my adoptive parents, which is kind of funny. I had things that the social worker had observed during visits before my adoption was finalized. That's what I'd like to see. Me too. That's what I'm trying to get right now. The the missing days. Mm -hmm. But any description of me. This is when I was already placed with my adoptive parents, but the adoption hadn't been finalized yet. Any description of me is left in, but then there's giant sections that are redacted that is talking about whatever their circumstances were at the time, which... Well, maybe because if it didn't work out, they would pull you from that home or something. I mean, who knows? That's so weird. I don't know, but that is still... It's still the uh, mis- inaccessible it's mystery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. funny because that's I'm going through this. I already have my original birth certificate, my adoption decree, but I'm trying to get all of my records released to me unredacted. And I'm mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, in a war with it. I, I'm in a war with it at the moment. I want to jump back for one second. Yeah. Did you have any siblings growing up or were you an only you were the only child? I grew up as an only child. So, yes. That must have been lonely. Yes, it was lonely. So my adoptive parents were not able to have biological children. And they told me at one point they had considered going back on the list. But when they adopted me, they were 38 and 40. And they would have had to wait probably another seven years. And it was very difficult to get social workers to come up north. And so they would have had to move back to where they were to get all those home visits and things happening again. And they didn't want to do that. So yeah, I grew up an only and I did read a lot. I read through my entire elementary school library. And um, (laughs) did you feel close to your parents or a little bit isolated or how was that? No, I felt very different Mm -hmm. and like I didn't fit. 
it was weird because I was the focus, the center of their world on a pedestal, very like, yeah, I was the the spoiled only. That was absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, but inside, it felt different for you. That's the yeah, and the, the interesting and part. The strange thing I mentioned growing up in a Mennonite town, like mm. I felt very different all the way around, and yeah. Yeah, I always knew like something wasn't quite right. You didn't feel close. Like there's theories out there that adoptees attach to their caregivers, but not necessarily bond. Do you believe that? I don't know if I've heard that before. I think we all have such different experiences. And I know some people were very compatible with their adoptive families. And I think probably from the outside looking in, people would probably assume that about me too. But that's not what my internal experience was. Well, and so many people are quiet about how they feel still. I mean, adoptees are very complicated, as we know. They keep a lot in and, you know, some share on the podcast and many don't. It's hard to study, right? Sarah and I talked about also, that. Yeah, and sometimes it takes a long time to get yeah. to a place of understanding, yeah. differentiating this versus that, if that makes sense. Well, when we don't have words for it or don't understand that adoption is like, you're not experience, having a normal experience. <laughs> It's easier to look back once you've unpacked things as an adult and understand more to look back and be like, oh, so that's why I had suicidal ideation from when I was 12. Oh, Mm -hmm. like in the moment, you're just like, what is wrong with me? There's something wrong with me. Yeah, it it is. It's only been in the past, not, not that long where I'm. I just grew up with such shame. I felt ashamed of myself and because I was so different from my family with my dad and that whole section and I felt shame. And it's just now that I'm sort of recognizing Mm -hmm. it it wasn't my fault. No. Yeah. I had that weird, just, I didn't, I was strange or weird if I let anybody in on my inner thoughts. So don't share them, you know, keep it in. It's nice talking to you and hearing this from you as well. Just everyone does have their journey. I'm yeah. curious. I'm curious. You get this big folder and you yes. said it. You didn't know what you were unpacking. Like all of a sudden, what happened for you with that? I I wrote the letter, I think, the same day or the next day. Like this was like a speeding bullet, it was just going to happen. Like, what did you write letter, in the letter? I sent it. I wrote that I was adopted, that I was looking for a connection with my biological mother. This is the address that we had for her. Her name was this because that her name was in my records. And really, the, the tropey stuff, like, I just want to say thank you and I had a good life and, you know, those kinds of things. And I want to know who, where, where I came from. (laughs) 
And it was it was just a one page and I mailed it. So this was in, within the same city. So I was born in Edmonton and was here for school. And Canada Post must have delivered it the next day <laughs> because I got an email back. I left an email address for them to contact. And my grandfather emailed me back the next day. And I was at work. That quickly. <laughs> yeah. Canada is more efficient in many ways than the U.S. I will just That's olden days now. That does not <laughs> <Yes>. happen anymore. <laughs> and I have so many lovely listeners that like to send things to me. And sometimes they'll message me and be like, oh, did you get it? I'm like, no. And it can be months. Like <laughs> <laughs> so that's definitely like long past. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So, so you get the email. What what does his email say? Oh my goodness. I wish I had had it handy. I could read it to you, but he's he said, I was told not to say anything to you until we had a chance to speak to um your mother. And but uh I think I've stayed in the background 22 years too long. Oh. And he was so excited, so oh. happy. It was like the kindest, oh. most beautiful thing. Yeah, I remember like tearing up. I couldn't believe it. I it was just like amazing. You stayed in the background twenty two years too long. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so what happened? Where he knew? How did she not have the support? You know, what just because of her age, they just didn't want to. I was born in eighty three, mm-hmm. and I think this is still a very much middle-class family who had expectations for their daughter to go to university and make something of herself, I think. Yeah. I think the stigma still of having a bastard child is just a real, real thing, even early 80s. So I don't think she got a choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't know that she would have wanted to parent either. 16 years old. You know, it's very young. It is very young. And they were sad about it, though. And Both I, your I, grandparents. It, I guess there isn't, there wasn't conversations still in 1983 about the family. Okay, if, if she can't raise it, then the family could raise it or let's keep it in the family. It doesn't sound like those conversations were happening. Yeah. I don't know because we have an organization in our city called the Terra Center and they are in existence to help teen parents and they do parenting classes and and connect people with resources and I donate money there. <laughs> I'm very invested in them succeeding and that's because in my records, it says that my mother had accessed some of their services. Oh. And so there there was talk about teen parenting then. And or but I, I mean even even family raising as grandparents help out or any of that. I mean, I think it's still the adoption stuff mm-hmm. was is still so prevalent, right? Mm-hmm. That that's just a, what you do. Right. You have a teen pregnancy that is a problem. This is an easy way to alleviate of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what happened from there? Did... <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, he was so excited and he was giving me information about the family and he emailed me back, I think (laughs) one or two times in between because they usually saw her on a certain day for dinner and she didn't come the day he was expecting. So he emailed again to say, oh, I don't know, maybe a week later or something, I got an email from her and she Mm -hmm. too was very excited and happy. And when I said speeding bullet, this is what I mean. I got that email from her. I emailed right back. And I don't know if it was within that same day, Nick and I drove to their house and I met her. (laughs) So you were all in the same area. Mm -hmm. Oh, we still live in the same city. Yeah. I'm guessing we haven't gone forward, but maybe you weren't emotionally prepared for all of this either. No, no, I was not. Nor was she. No. Because she was, what, 38 at this point? She was 38 and I was 22. And yeah, it was was a ride. (laughs) Originally, I'm guessing it was like exciting and... Oh, yeah. Wonderful. And yeah. Yeah. I had all the classic honeymoon. It was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we're in the same room. And we took a picture and it was super awkward because... At that time, I was still extremely shy and quiet. My husband is the same, and my mother is the same. (laughs) And so her husband was there and sort of trying to like prompt us along. (laughs) I brought some photos. I brought some photos of myself to share with her, and um, she gave me a couple of her, and... Yeah, it was that word. Everybody says it was surreal. It was surreal. Did she and her husband have any other kids? No, they didn't. And never did? No. So you are her only. Mm. You're an only child in two families. I am. Yeah. It's, I'm I'm sure her pain is It's quite big. I can tell from just how you're feeling. And are you still in reunion? No. No, we were in contact for a few months and she cut off contact and that was that. Wow. That I, that was I that touch I with mean, my grandfather. That's what I was gonna ask. Mm-hmm. But I mean, did she give you a reason? Mm-hmm. Yep. She said that I was um too critical of her and her family. And that she wanted to just pause things for now. And it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think back, right? Because then I think, oh my God, what what did I say? Like, what were the things I was critical about, you know? And I don't know, I was 22. Yeah. And you don't strike me as a critical type person. So it's very, it's probably just, casual conversation about this or that and yeah or asking questions yeah asking you know asking questions i went for lunch with my grandfather once during that time and like i mentioned it to her and i was like it was so nice he came to school and took me out for lunch and she went right to like well did my mom know about that and like there was like this thing with secrets or something and i'm like i don't understand i don't understand i'm not in that wrong about that i'm not i don't know so that was kind of a a weird thing and 
now, because of what I do, talking to some other mothers of loss when you're first in reunion, that can be like a really painful thing if you're trying to build a relationship with your long lost child and then other people are sort of inserting themselves in, that can be really painful. So that might be something. But I mean, we could talk about that for five hours and never Mm -hmm. get to the bottom of it. I don't Right. This was all just too painful for her and me. So your grandfather wanted the relationship. What about your grandmother? No? Was she the architect of, of... Of the relinquishment? I don't know. I mean, that is my assumption too. It is my assumption too. Because even after my mother cut off contact, I stayed in touch with my grandfather for many years. And we would go for lunch maybe once a year. We would email just a tiny little bit. And he would be like, I don't know. I don't know what's up with them. I don't know. And he would kind of pair them as a, so, yeah. And uh, did, did she couple... have siblings? Like, aunts, do you have aunts and uncles on that? Yeah, she's one younger brother. And I guess the big question is your father. Yeah. I initially didn't want to find him because I had, <laughs> you know, you have these assumptions, right? And a lot of us, I think, look for our mothers first because that's the like physical, more physical connection, right? You're in mm-hmm. their body for however long. And I had these assumptions about like what type of person would get somebody pregnant and then like let them. Yeah. Which is all so ridiculous that we we put everything on the mother. And anyway. And the very end of my 20s, I was doing this project through my church actually, where we sort of map out our life and and you're kind of looking for what your purpose is and all these kinds of things. And so I was looking through my adoption paperwork. And I remember thinking in my head the first time I got my papers that you'd be a hard person to find because his name was un- it was very regular. But it's actually flipped that my birth mother's last surname is is extremely common and his is not. Oh. So when I was looking through the paperwork, I was like, oh my gosh, I actually never have heard of that name before. And so I literally typed it into Facebook and his profile popped up. He had a picture of himself as a child and his teeth were the same as mine when I was a kid. And I was like, that's my dad, like I right away. So what do you do when you find somebody on Facebook like that? Do you send them a friend request? Like, what do you do? (laughs) I'm still in that. So tell me what you do. (laughs) Well, I messaged him and I asked if he went to a specific high school during this time period. And the funny part of that is he knew someone with the last name Radke, I guess, when he was in high school. And so he, I think, had this, he probably had this connection in his head that he thought, oh, this is so-and-so's connection from high school. And I and so he was like, yes, I did. Why do you ask? And I said, oh, well, my mother is so-and-so, and I think you're the other half. And I think I sent that message in December. And I did not get a message back from him until March, the following year. Oh, the following year. 
So uh-huh. three months, three months, three some odd months later. Wow. And the message? <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, I'm likely the other half. And again, it was very welcoming. Like, so happy you found me. I'm married. Oh. I we lived in Fort Langley at the time, which is just outside of Vancouver. And he has three younger children with his wife. And so I was back on the reunion <laughs> roller coaster. So he he was open about it and willing to tell his wife? She knew already, oh, which I think for me was fortunate because I mm-hmm. know this is the sticking point for a lot of adoptees in reunion that their partner, the birth parent's partner does not know. Yeah. Yeah. Yours is, this is kind of unusual. I like yeah, that. So she was in high school with them. So she oh, knew. She knew. And oh. uh, they weren't together at that time, but they were friends, but she yeah. knew the whole situation. And was she welcoming to you? Yeah. We definitely had some rocky points <laughs> in the first couple of years together. But yes, yes, she was welcoming. And they are very religious Catholic family. And so when they told my younger siblings, they were my youngest sister was nine. And then I have a middle sister and then a brother. So nine to 14, I think they were. It was very difficult for them <laughs> to be like, wait, my like super religious family <laughs> and dad has this like secret kid from like, you know. Yeah. Are you in touch with your siblings now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So this is a happy reunion. This is a happy sure. reunion. I am, when we're recording this, I'm 12 years in yeah. and I have very good relationships with my siblings. I was just texting my sister last night and my dad and I text every Saturday morning. So I had to message uh-huh. him and say, can't talk today, <laughs> but yeah. I'm Where glad. are your adoptive parents in this whole I wondered. Mm-hmm. picture? I'm estranged from them at this point, and that's been several years. When I was first in reunion with my mother, it was difficult for my adoptive mother in particular. And I remember when I told her that my birth mother didn't want to be in touch anymore, and that I hadn't heard anything, and she would ask, she would ask if, if I had heard anything from her and I was like no I don't think I don't think she's gonna be in touch anymore like she was like sad I'm sorry but like the look on her face was you know just like relief yeah like you just and I was like oh man that sucks that you just couldn't rally be happy for me that I knew where Mm. I came from like I think there just was this piece that she could, I think she was always really afraid of something like this happening. And then when it did, like, oh, all my worst fears are coming true. And okay, good. She's not going to have that in her life anymore. It seems like it's, again, we hear that a lot. I'm sure you do too. The reaction from the adoptive parents, primarily adoptive mothers. Yeah. It just, 
highlights how effective pre-counseling and understanding the adopted child's experience and how that would save a lot of relationships between the adoptive parents and the children. Just to push the ego out of the way, I guess, would be the fragile ego of, and also, I don't know, certainly in our era, mine and Louise's, the baby scoop era of shame and infertility shame, and so therefore not ever addressing those issues. There's so much that comes into these relationships that wasn't pre-healed, as it were, you know? Mm -hmm. It always strikes me, listening to you also, just that reunion is really, it's just the beginning of a whole bunch of, it's really the beginning in many ways for many adoptees, right? Of kind of the pain and the unpacking and it's not easy. No, it's not easy. And I guess to just address the thinking about pre-counseling and those kinds of things, even when those things take place, so many open adoptions close because the adoptive parents can't quite seem to leave space for the bio parents to still have mm-hmm. contact. It just is there's something in us when we have our mama bear energy yeah. over your child. It's just like there's just no room for anybody else. And it's really unfortunate. And so when people are doing that well, I know that took a lot of work for them to get there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that we interviewed somebody who is working very hard on that and has been working on that for a long time. And you can tell it's hard for her and she works hard on it and she's an adoptee. So she understands things in a different way. But I think it is human nature to kind of, you have to kind of elevate yourself, right? It's hard. I'm sorry. You're, it's, you're not, you're only in reunion really with one parent of four. I mean, not reunion, but in contact with Mm -hmm. one of four parents. Yeah. So the estrangement is fairly recently? Yeah, it's just in the last few years. And it was just years in the making, I'll say. I have been in and out of therapy for so long. And... I tried really hard to put up healthy boundaries over all kinds of things. I got married super young. I think that was unexpected to my parents that I already would be building a life without them when I was 20. And I think they just never could let me go into adulthood. And so that was a very difficult transition for them, for me. And all through these last 20 years, I've tried very hard to maintain a relationship with no give on that side. And and I don't know, we talk a lot about therapy on my show. <laughs> and yeah. when you're working on yourself and you're you're trying to become a better person in, in all kinds of ways, and you're doing these things, you're just moving often farther and farther apart from folks that are not doing those things. Yeah. And there just came a point where I was like, what, what am I doing here? Yeah. Psychologist support at the time I chose to estrange 
it, it was nothing I entered into lightly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an assumption, right? People are like, oh, well, it just got too hard. So you just like quit and that's easier. No, it's not easier. No, no, I, I understand that that is harder, I would think, to oh, make for that sure. choice. You know, and when you start to take care of yourself rather than, I mean, for me anyway, anxiousness of taking care of myself sometimes doesn't win. I'm too anxious to do it, if that makes sense. So yeah. that that's hard. I really understand that. It is hard. I'm curious about this. How does your show, I mean, you're pretty well known. I'm guessing that everybody in your world also knows about Adoptees On and what the work you do. How has that affected any of these relationships? What did it make it worse or harder? I'm guessing uh, it's not great for some of them, but, <laughs> but like your grandfather, does he, you know, all of that? I don't know if he knew that I had my show. Mm-hmm. He passed a couple years ago oh. and I found out by Googling names, you know, like, so that's painful. Yeah. I don't know if my mother knows about my show. I'm assuming she does. I don't know. I'm not sure. And your adoptive Um, parents, they know about it? They do know about it. I know they were listening at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard. (laughs) That's the thing, right? You're like, how do I block people from listening to my (laughs) public show? I can't. I did like a cringe, right? When you said, I'm like, oh, Oh, yeah. I know. I know. I don't think my father has ever listened. My adoptive father would know how to find my podcast, nor is he interested in finding it. So that part of my family, I'm not that concerned about. But it is, it's kind of a responsibility. Well, it's, I don't know how you are, but so my dad listens to the show. Every oh, week, Friday Aww. morning, <laughs> every cute. week. It's very sweet. <laughs> and when I record, I never think, oh, my dad is going to be listening to this. Right. Because I just, for better or worse, I just say the things I don't hold back. Me yeah. too. I can't <laughs> unring the bell. Like, you know, right? How many times have you been like, oh my God. You can't unring the bell. Sure that was. Well, it's just done now. And so... There's definitely been things like, like, oh my gosh, like, oh, I don't really want him to hear them, but I guess he's going to, that's okay. I think my siblings have maybe listened once or twice. I actually had my dad's wife on the show oh. and we talk about the, like, how hard it was for her integrating this other adult woman into her husband's life and their family life, which that was a hard episode to record and yeah. hard to share, painful. And I had very strong reactions from my friends who listened to be like, I can't believe she said that or whatever. And then I had a lot of people email in and and ask to be connected with her because somebody in their life really identified with that. There's a lot of people affected that we forget about, right? And that's, she could help others in that way. I mean, it's it's not just three people in the triads, got all sorts of relationships. Yeah, and I think when you get in reunion, I'll speak for myself, I was very self-centered and 
it's all about me mm-hmm. and what I can get out of these relationships like that I've wanted for so long because you regress right you're back in like the needy like childhood states it's just this strange thing that happens and so that can be really challenging for the adults in the room to deal with oh yeah um yeah yeah it's also it's it's a it's all just so complicated and every I don't know what I'm trying to say. Layered. Yeah. It is. It is layered. It's complex. It's difficult. And if I was giving giving tips to someone who is searching and wants to make connections, it would be save your money for therapy (laughs) (laughs) and Get a great adoptee, adoption competent therapist who can Mm -hmm. slow you down and work through these things. There came a point two years into my reunion with my my dad that my therapist was like, okay, we need to have a group session (laughs) because things were falling apart. And me personally, I'm like, oh my God, it's me again. What the heck is wrong with me? Nobody can stay in relationship with me. They didn't want me when I was born. They don't want me now. Like, what is happening? And she really helped us to sort of like reframe you and Nick are a fam. My husband and I, like, you're a family unit and you have a new baby and like they're a family unit. And this is, she helped us. It was so painful at the time. It was so painful. She made Mm. rules for contact and all these different kinds of things. And like, it saved our relationship for as painful and hard as that was, it saved it. And so folks that go in with no supports. Yes. Me. One of yeah. those. Yeah. No I support. love hearing that. That is me such, too. I, and again, that's the generational thing too. We didn't, you know, I started going to therapy at age 20. I knew I was like, something's wrong with me. I need to figure mm-hmm. this out. And no therapist connected relinquishment trauma or adoption or, you know, they connected the other traumas, but not that. Right. So it's really, uh, it's so good. I mean, it's great that now there are adoption competent therapists that can help and understand it. And, yes. And community is so big. I mean, if we had had the community, we have, I mean, Sarah and I have such a community now as you do, just even knowing you, Sarah, who we talk to, the Facebook groups, there's so many that, you can see people working their problems out on them, but it's safe and you get good advice or bad advice, but you can get it out, right? That's, I, well, I we were like in for, a vacuum for yeah, years. Yeah. And for folks that can listen to your show or mine yeah. and hear about how complex reunion is and it's not the airport meeting and like <laughs> what happens after those like find my family shows. <laughs> Right. People weren't the, talking the next about day. That. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, it, it always ends at reunion, but really, yeah. that's that's when there's a a whole other beginning, complex, Absolutely. complicated, painful yeah. beginnings. Yeah. So, this I has know. been such a great conversation, yes. Haley. Really, so happy. And and so you have a child. I have two. I have two. Oh. Yeah. That must. That's another. Oh. Uh, Boy, that, that, I mean, just, but a connection, you know, that, that 
so deep that yeah so I was in reunion with my dad when I was pregnant with my first child and so he could be poppy and like Aww. poppy and grammy and <laughs> that definitely threw a wrench into our relationship that is one of the sure. things that led us to therapy but yeah when I had my first son I don't know if you guys had that moment I know you're both mothers yeah where you're like oh yeah here's the baby how could I give this away? Like, yeah. And, and there's right. a moment oh, of yeah. like, I don't get it. And oh, I get the pain. I get yeah. the pain of not being connected to my child. So mm. I was just talking to last night, childhood friend and part of the mainstream narrative of like thinking how wonderful adoption is and all that. Yeah. And I really, uh, when I said to them, if you, you grow up with no mirror, you know, they, I was with two brothers who look a lot alike, who were really close, had never even thought about any of it. And and it was like their lightning bolt moment of, I never thought about that. Like right. growing up without somebody that you're similar with. And so, yeah. Well, this is, this is wonderful. We, we want to stay in touch and. You know, I'm glad that this took a while, actually, because we're in a different place and to know you and I don't know, it's just been really a nice morning to do this. Yeah. Thank you. Louise and I were deeply fogged when we started our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might like, ask who are you these people? <laughs> you can ask that when, when we come to you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I might ask deeply you. Deeply fogged. That. Yes. <laughs> I love it. No longer the case. <laughs> I think how brave you were at such a young age, you know, it's really, I mean, you really were young compared to a lot of adoptees we talked to as well. Well, and and when I started my show, I wouldn't say I was in the fog anymore, but my views on adoption have radically changed yeah. over the last seven years. The and more you learn and know, it's... You can't unsee it. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. Well, uh, you all are doing such great work. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And the more adoptive voices in the world, the better. So and you are doing great work. And you are our godmother to us. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm glad, you know, it's funny. We we didn't know about you when we started. We were very just novice in what we were doing. And then I'm glad we didn't. I think it would have intimidated us in some way. Like, it's nice to, now I feel like we're ready for this conversation. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's lovely. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Haley. Thank you, Haley. Thank you so much, Sarah and Louise. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad we finally got Haley. I mean, and you were right. What you said in the, when we were talking to her, just like the timing, it was, yeah, it was good that it was now and not two years ago. So (laughs) I completely agree about that. She's so thoughtful and contemplative, which, you know, when she said she read all the books in her Mm -hmm. elementary school library and I can picture her as a child. I could too. I still have something about her. It's very youthful in that way where I'm just picture reading and you know, it's funny. I wonder world around me. Yeah. It also, I mean, aside from the adoptee thing, I mean, at least because I raised an only child, like he still exudes some sort of youthful thing. Maybe it's the combination of being an adoptee and a lonely only. A lonely I just only. came up with that term. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but. A lonely only. I have a, a lonely, lonely only too. 
my son said to me recently, you're an only child too, mom. And I thought, oh, oh, you know, because of my, of Linda only had one child. Mm. And I said, oh, that's interesting. That's in his mind. Yes, that. it is interesting. But she was back to Haley. Just, I'm really excited to know her and, and just to hear her, like you said, thoughtful and makes you want to go back and listen to some of her episodes with things we know now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, Louise, <laughs> what, what do we, we say? Another great episode. Another great episode. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.